to be here, and I'm, I am ready. It's been uh, a crazy few weeks. It's been a family vacation to Florida, and then it was a down in Louisville and being able to wrap up the Jonah series, and then it was wrapping up with a Good Friday, the Lenten series, and now we're coming to kind of in the church, the climax of the, the church year, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where if it wasn't for his resurrection, we would just be absolute fools for being here this morning. We would look at really stupid, dressing up, wearing pastels and really nice ties, and we'd look really dumb gathering and just singing songs if it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is, it's in that that we have hope, that we have reason, that we have purpose. So this morning, we are going to be wrapping up and concluding our sermon series. Even if you, you have missed what we have done the preceding seven weeks, walking through the book of Jonah, this is going to make sense as we talk about Jonah, a man swallowed by a very large fish, and the resurrection, and you. Jonah, resurrection, you. And this morning we are going to work, we've worked through each and every word, we've worked through the chapters, the verses, and we, we finally are here at the very end. But what we haven't done yet as a, as a community is seen in full how this book, the book of Jonah, relates to Jesus and what Jesus had to say about the book of Jonah. So I've, what I've got planned for us this morning is to see why doing such an important thing is critical, and then we'll take a look at two main things that Jesus said about the book of Jonah. Trust me, there's a connection between Jonah and the fish, the resurrection of Christ, and you this morning. So let's look at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, page 817 in the pew Bibles that we've provided for, for you. If you brought your own Bible, it's on whatever page number you have on the Bible you have. And we're going to start at verse 38. Matthew 12, verse 38, reading to verse 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to, to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's blessing. Father God, we come searching this morning. No matter where we are in our spiritual walk, we come searching for something greater than what our life is offering. Lord, open our ears and our hearts to see that the something that is greater is here, and it is Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray right now, even now, Lord, that you would open all of our hearts to receive your good word. And Lord, by your spirit, you would change my heart our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, the first point I want to make is redemption. Redemption. All the Bible is about Jesus. All of it. And that sounds kind of weird, but from the very first word given in Genesis to the very last word given in the book of Revelation, the entire book, even that strange book called Numbers that we really don't understand and all those strange minor prophets and major prophets that most of us have never read, right? If we're honest about it, 
we go, I don't know what that's about. I don't even know what the Old Testament is. It's a bunch of rules and regulations, and they're numbering people. And they've got really strange, weird names. All of it, all of it is about Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever been in one of these conversations, but maybe you've been in a conversation with somebody about the Bible, maybe a specific part of it, maybe your beliefs about the Bible, and you want, or maybe you're talking around politics, and your, your personal religious beliefs start coming out, and all of a sudden, you, the person that you're having a conversation with all of a sudden kind of gives you that look, and their arms cross, and they do one of these, and then they say something like, well, that's, that's your interpretation. Ever have that? Where all of a sudden they go, I don't know, you're a little off your rocker there. That's kind of your interpretation. Well, when it comes to the Bible, the Bible, people come up with all kinds of crazy ideas and, and crazy interpretations. If you've been around the church long enough, you, you've seen preachers come and go, and you'll see some of those just wild guys. you got this Harold Camping who was out in California who was predicting the day and the time that Jesus would come. And he said, see, here it comes. And you got the people down, down south who, you know, that strange kind of Bible Belt place where they start, you know, building bunkers because the day that Jesus is coming is coming soon. So let's kind of build, you know, there's going to be a, a terrible end of the year world kind of this war going on. So we got to get ready. And you see all these kind of crazy things going on and crazy interpretations. Well, basically, there are four, and I'm really kind of narrowing this down, so a lot of permission here. There's really kind of four ways that people interpret the Bible. The first one, just plain out, says it's not true at all. It, that in reality, it's just a fairy tale. This, this whole book is just a really nice kind of uh, story that makes people feel warm and fuzzy, but it's really, and you need to read it like that. This is a fairy tale. Don't take this to heart. Don't apply it. It's, it's just this really nice moralistic kind of book. The other, another view is it, it's part fairy tale, it's part true, and you, the onus is on you to kind of figure out which is true and which is fairy tale. You know, that David and Goliath thing, that's kind of fairy tale, really. Little boy, five little stones, you know, in his sling, and the sling goes round and round and round and round and round. And then he kills a giant. Come on, are you serious? That's kind of a fairy tale. It kind of gives us a picture that, oh, okay, you too can slay your giant. And then there's another third view that says, listen, it's just a book that you are free to interpret however you wish. And so in a room this size, there's at least a hundred different ways that you can interpret it, and you have the freedom to do whatever you want to, whatever meaning or significance that you can make out of it. Whatever you come up with is good. You get to make your own fairy tale. And then there's the fourth view. So obviously, hopefully, you're understanding one, two, and three are not Paul's views and not the views of Missio Dei Church. The fourth view says that the Bible speaks about real people and real events that actually happened, actually happened. And like a fairy tale, it's good and better than a fairy tale because it's actually true. It's actually true. And when you take the fourth view like we do, here as Missio Day Church, it forces you to really work hard with the words of the Bible and, and to take what it actually says very seriously. If this is true and it applies to you and me in our day-to-day -day life, every moment by moment, then we have to take it seriously. And for Christians, Jesus is the leader, the head of the church, the head of the religion, and we love him and we believe him and we follow him and we are to be obedient to everything that he has said and taught us. Everything. So there are two different times when Jesus was teaching and preaching when he addressed this very issue of how to interpret the Bible. What he said on these occasions was quite striking for that time and even quite striking for us. It, it's kind of sh shocking, really. The first time was towards the beginning of his teaching ministry. And many of us, we, we've preached through it uh, here at Missio Day Church. We've preached through the Sermon on the Mount. You know, it's, 
we kind of have these really great ideas. Jesus is kind of sitting up there as a sage, and he's passing out little sermonettes here and there. Do this and don't do that. And, and in the middle of this famous Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 17, in the middle of what he's saying, he says these pretty radical things. And then he busts out with this line that he has come into the world to fulfill all the Bible. He's come to fulfill all the Bible. He says exactly, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So the current religious leaders of the day thought he was probably pretty crazy, pretty self-absorbed. I mean, on one hand, it's hard to blame them when this guy shows up on the scene after they have a long history of seminaries and teachers all being trained up, and that all of a sudden this guy shows up on the scene and says, listen, the way for you, take your seminary training as you want, but the way to interpret the Bible is looking at me. Looking at me, how I live, what I've come to do, the purpose of my life is fulfilling all of Scripture. So if you want to understand this book, look at me. It'd be like me coming in here this morning and say, listen, the the whole key, the whole way to understand and interpret the Bible is how it relates to me. Paul Vroom. I'll tell you, very quickly, I would be looking for a new job. But Jesus comes in and says that. And it's a huge claim that Jesus is making here. There's, that's one of the reasons that C.S. Lewis used to say that there are three options when it comes to Jesus. Either Jesus is a complete liar, or he is an absolute lunatic, or he's who he said he is, Lord of all. The second time that Jesus said this type of thing, he, was, he made it even more clear, and he was actually walking some men through what this all means. And this, this second time came at the end of his ministry, his teaching ministry, after he rose from the dead, and it's found in Luke chapter 24. It is Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Have anybody heard that story? It is this beautiful story of Jesus is walking along, and he just so happens to meet up. His, their two paths kind of converge, and Jesus is meeting these two men, and they are just talking about what happened in Jerusalem. Can you believe what happened in Jerusalem? All the, our teacher, this, the one we are following, we thought he was the Messiah, and now he's dead, and they buried him. He's in the grave, and then there's all this talk about he's risen from the dead. What is going on? And they don't even realize in this conversation, as Jesus is talking with them, that it's actually Jesus. And they get to talking about the basic substance of their conversation and it's really a confusion about the bible they have questions and they're confused about how the bible is working and what it says to be true and, and then jesus does something phenomenal in luke 24 27 it says this is what he did beginning with moses that is the first five books of the bible beginning with moses and all the prophets and that's shorthand for the rest of the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So basically, he takes them through the whole Bible that they had and shows them how every person, every story, every event, every law, every miracle, every prophecy, all of it was pointing to him, Jesus he tells them the way to interpret the Bible correctly is to see how it relates to him. Basically, he says, look, it's all, this whole book, every chapter, every verse, every word, it is all about me. All about me. So one of the books that Laura and I love to use with our kids, uh, and Isaac has just been kind of growing in this, his love to lead our family devotions at night, uh, is to read what is called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It is this great devotional, uh, and uh, its kind of tagline is that every story whispers his name. And uh, we give this to parents when their kids are baptized, and what this story does is it retells uh, 40 stories in kids' language, and then it 
concludes each story briefly with a hint or a reference to finding its fulfillment in Jesus. So the first story, before the creation of the world, Sally uh, Lloyd-Jones lays out about how, she tells a story about how she interprets and how we are to interpret Scripture. And I want you to hear this morning about the story and the song. Listen carefully. God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere. Because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a perfect mirror, to show us what he is like, to help us know him, to make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail, the way red poppies grow wild, the way a dolphin swims, And God put it into words, too. And he wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules. Maybe that's you. Telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly has some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the the Bible is a book of heroes. Showing you how, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, as you will soon find out. Most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and they run away. Sound like anybody we're talking about? Jonah, right? At times, they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who has come from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he he loves. It's the most wonderful fairy tale that comes true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There's lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in the puzzle, the piece that makes all the pieces fit together. And suddenly you see this beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the one child upon whom everything would depend. This is the child who would one day, but wait. Our story starts where all good stories start, right at the beginning. So the whole book, this whole book, Holy Scripture, is all about Jesus. All the Bible is about him and the redemption that he provides and he extends to us. All the Bible is about Jesus and until you and I see that, we will never fully understand the Bible. We'll just keep up coming, keep coming up with some wacky interpretations and ideas that just leave us absolutely lost and hopeless. What we, what you need most is Jesus. Where are you with that today? Have you looked at, how have you looked at and treated the Bible? Is it just basically a good handbook to say, hey, should I be doing this with my girlfriend or my boyfriend? How do I treat my husband? Okay, all right, I'll turn to Ephesians 5. I'll suck it up and deal with it. Okay, so how, what about the church? What about membership? What about baptism? Okay, I'll find it here. What does it say? Do you treat it like that? Do you treat it as a nice fairy tale of how to live your life? Or... Do you think of it as the greatest story that has ever been told and how it puts Jesus on magnificent display for the whole world and thereby redeems your life? If you don't see it like that, I am begging you, change your view of the Bible. It's a much better book than you have ever dreamed now to Jonah. 
each week I've concluded the text and the sermon by kind of looking to Jesus, looking forward to Jesus. And I've intentionally not gone to Matthew 12 to deal with what Jesus says there. I wanted to wait till we get to the end of the series to see Jesus' perspective, to look back at time and say, listen, this is how it relates to me. I'm, in, I'm the interpretive lens for all of this. Matthew 12 gives the clearest explanation of how the book of Jonah points to Jesus, and it does so by looking backward. So we've looked back. We've, we've gone seven weeks six or seven weeks through this we've walked through jonah and if you haven't had a chance this is your first time i encourage you hop on our website find jonah listen to all the series so but we are going to jump in and get the full effect now so here is the first thing that jesus is dealing with and this is the second major point resurrection the sign of jonah is jesus the sign of Jonah is Jesus. Remember, what they are wanting is, is a sign. The whole conversation comes about in Matthew because the scribes and the Pharisees are asking for a sign, some kind of boom, give me some kind of idea, some picture in the sky. And they say in verse 8, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, you've got to wonder what really is going on here in this story. What is it that they are really wanting from Jesus? Because the reality is, Jesus has been doing all kinds of signs and miracles up to this point. Just a few verses earlier in the same chapter, Jesus had just healed a man with a withered hand. Just got done doing that. It kind of seems like Jesus has been doing a bunch of signs already. So what are they really wanting from, from Jesus? And to really get at it, I think we have to ask ourselves, what have we perhaps, what have you secretly longed for or wished in order to believe in God and follow him? What have you longed for to really, and you've never said this out loud because if you would say it out loud, you'd kind of feel foolish and dumb saying it out loud, but what have you secretly longed for and hoped for? Just, I just want to believe. And some of you here this morning may not be Christians, even though you have grown up in the church your entire life. You may give yourself the name Christian. You may have been baptized. You may have made a profession of faith. But the reality is, at your core, your very heart of hearts, you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. And in the back of your head, you really wonder, is this really true? Is this really true? Is there really a God? Is there really a Jesus? Is there really a cross? Is there really a, a resurrection? And, and all this stuff, is it really true? And maybe you're even asking, listen, I wish that there was really some incontrovertible proof here. Have you ever wished for that kind of thing? Just give me some proof. And that's more than likely what these these scribes and Pharisees were, were looking for. Because, you see, Jesus' miracles could be interpreted in several different ways. It, he could have been a really good trickster, a really good magician. He could have set it up like Benny Hinn and had a whole slew of people healed in Jesus' name and really kind of weird things happening here. Maybe he was just a really good orator and able to bring thousands of people to come hear these new stories. Maybe their ears were being tickled with some new kind of interesting teaching. And they wanted a bigger sign of proof. Most likely something from heaven where Jesus would just let loose and let his power go, showing that he is God by ripping open the sky or making angels suddenly appear, praising him or, or making the wind or weather obey his voice. The funny thing is that Jesus has actually done all this stuff, just never on command. And, and never in front of his opponents, which is kind of actually the point here. In response to them, Jesus says that they are an evil and an adulterous generation for seeking this kind of a sign. Why is that? Why are they evil and adulterous for demanding a sign? You see, if Jesus was actually God, then as God, 
Is it fitting for you to dance whenever humanity tells you to dance? Jesus, I want you to jump this high to prove that you are really God. Do this! Do this! And Jesus say, are you serious? That is stripping me of my, my godness. That is not what I do. I don't jump when you say jump. And even when you say jump this high, I will never jump that high. You see, isn't that role reversal? If God did to that kind of thing, wouldn't it belittle his very character, his very nature? After all, who is God here? Wouldn't it be kind of uh, end up seeming like man's the one in charge and not God? In effect, what you literally have is the scribes and the Pharisees demanding a sign here. Is, is that a mere man stepping into the place of God and telling God what, man, what he should be doing? And that's why Jesus says, you are a, an evil and an adulterous generation. Now, Jesus could have just left it there and said anything because that would have been his right. But then he does something funny. Jesus is full of grace full of grace. So right after saying he won't give them a sign, he's not going to throw them uh, what they want, he does throw them a bone and actually gives them a sign anyway. It's just not the kind of sign they were looking for. Here's what he says. No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So this is genius in several different ways. He points back to the Word, which they are to be scholars of, because it's always his intention that we rely on the Word of God rather than our own personal experience. Two, he points backward in time to Jonah and says, that's what's going to happen to me. And the fish... That kind of stuff is a picture, a sign of what is going to happen to me. Do you have, have eyes open? Because the sign is going to be coming. So what's Jesus getting at? Well, let's recall what happened to Jonah and that great big fish. Is the story really about a fish? No, thank you. Just making sure. So Jonah and this great big fish. The storm is raging. Jonah is thrown overboard to save the lives of these sa sailors. And, and you figure Jonah is a goner. He's dead. He's going to sink down. But instead, he gets swallowed whole by this great fish. And then after three days, this fish spits him up on dry ground. And Jonah is alive and now able to preach to Nineveh that they might be saved. Jesus looks forward in time to what he was going to do in his dying on the cross and his rising again. Then he looks backward to what happened to Jonah and says, that's what I am about to do. That's what I'm going to do. Do you get it? I'm going to give up my life. I'm going to give up my life and be in darkness for three days in order to save some people and when I come back to life on the third day, good news will be declared so that many people will repent and be spared. So the sign of Jonah is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And this is royal proof. This is evidence. This is the sign of truth of Jesus, that he is God and that salvation is real. Listen to Romans 1.4. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. What Jesus does here is hang all the truth of His whole life and His whole ministry, the whole of Christianity. He hangs it all on His resurrection from the dead. And what is astonishing about this, besides it being the solid evidence and making Christianity different than every other religion in the world, what makes this astonishing is, what makes it astonishing for you, for me, what makes it a real sign for us and not just some demonstration of divine power, what makes it more than that is that it speaks to the deepest longing 
of your heart, of my heart, of our lives, the deepest thing that we want. And here's what I mean, the essential struggle that the scribes and Pharisees had is doubt. They doubted. Now sometimes faith gets pitted as being the opposite of certainty. As if faith was just this blind leap into the dark, not knowing where you're going to end up. But that's not faith. Faith means trust in something that is absolutely sure. Sure. So for example, will there be faith in heaven when there's nothing left to doubt because all it is there is Jesus, the throne, the angels, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain? Will there be faith then? Listen. Yes. Because faith is trust. And we will delight in and worship Him whom we trust. And this is the deal. Beneath the surface, beneath it all, our deepest struggle, your deepest struggle, my deepest struggle, our deepest challenge and the reason that we long for some sort of sign is because you and I doubt. How we live our lives is all because do we really believe that God is trustworthy, that what he says is going to be true? Do I really believe that? Because if I did, I would live a totally different way. If I live, if I really believe what God said about these things, that informs my sexuality, that informs my finances, that informs the way that I, we live in relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ, husbands and wives, with our children, our co-workers. If God, what God actually said is true, and I can trust everything that he says, that says informs the rest of my life. But the reason is, we are afraid. We're afraid of the unknown, aren't we? What tomorrow may bring. We're afraid of life not turning out the way that I really want it to. I feel screwed in this whole situation. I'm afraid of what it's going to look like. I, I'm afraid of the wrong thing happening. And my not, life not turning out as rosy and pretty as I want or I dream or I wish. I'm afraid about this darkness and I'm afraid about death. And Jesus goes to the heart of the doubt and the fear by rising from the dead. He rises from the dead. Through His resurrection, He secures, He bolts down new life for us and declares it for us who trust in Him. He bolts it down and says, trust this, look, I rose from the dead and I secured something for you. Now trust in me. Have faith in me. I conquered sin. I conquered death. I gave you life. Trust in me. And it's the greatest sign of all. It's the greatest sign he could ever give because it's the sign that most ministers and addresses our heart and our deepest need. And that is love. Jesus said earlier in Scripture, I have come to give you life and life to its fullest. Do you believe that? Really? Do you believe that? I've had friends say to me, if I could just see Jesus, if I could just see him risen, if I could just see kind of like Thomas, that I could just see the marks in his hands, if I could just see a miracle, if I could see some kind of sign... Uh, then of course I would believe. Then I'd trust the Bible. The honestly, though, I don't think so. I don't think so because I don't think our inability to believe is primarily a head issue up here. Not only does it diminish what Jesus had accomplished if he had to keep dying and rising in every generation, you know, Jesus is going, okay, I've got to die again. I've got to provide another sign. Was that not enough? But the attitude, the, the heart of demanding a sign shows that there's really no sign that will ever really do. The only sign which can really break in and that can really address our heart is what the resurrection of Jesus Christ does. So let me ask you this. 
Where do you need the resurrection life and power of Jesus Christ to minister to you today? Where? Think about it in your head. And it's not a question I want you to shout out. But I want you to ask yourself honestly, where is it, what area in my life do I need the resurrection life and power of Jesus Christ to minister to me today? Is it a relational issue? Is it a trust issue? Is your kind of yearning a sweet sin issue? And you need the resurrection, life, and power of Jesus to break in and minister to you. Where are the areas of deadness and darkness which need to be turned to new life so that you can experience the fullness of life that Jesus promised? Where are there areas of fear, doubt, and distrust that you need to turn over to a trustworthy, faithful Savior? In what other areas of your life do you need to hear this? Jesus is real. He's alive. He's true. He knows and cares for you. You see, the resurrection of Jesus isn't just our entry ticket into heaven, but thank God it also is. It's more than that. It's not just your entry ticket. It's more than that. Jesus' resurrection is the life-giving power of God that administers to us here and now. He gives us new life. And I pray that this morning that's going to be true for us today. My last point. I'm going to try to keep on moving. The last point is repentance. The judge of judgment is Jesus. This could easily be a whole sermon by itself. (laughs) So I'm going to kind of keep it streamlined. This is the second thing that Jesus says about the book of Jonah and how it points to him. Listen to verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So remember what happened in the book of Jonah? Jonah comes back into the city. He preaches this eight-word sermon. The entire city, from the the king all the way down to cattle, are, are repenting and fasting about what they've heard. And in a miracle of God's grace, for reasons that we are totally unsure of, other than it's God's grace, the whole city repents. And apparently, according to Jesus here, it is real repentance. They turned from their sin. They weren't just sorry, but man, screwed that one up. They were deeply sorrowful for their sin, and they turned and turned to God. And Jesus says, those people, the people of Nineveh who repented, are going to rise up against those who don't repent at Jesus' word and work. Jesus says the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment. What does that mean? We don't have enough time to unpack 101 different scripture references, so I'll just give you a few. The first one is from Romans 1.18. tells us about a judgment that is happening all the time. Bad stuff, which is the wrath of God, meant to wake us up so that we can turn to God. Hebrews uh, 12, 6 and 7, tells what may be judgment for some is loving discipline. For others, it is meant to teach them and draw them closer to God. That judge, that's judgment in general. However, in both the Old and New Testament, you see something called the last judgment, the one great day of judgment. And the Bible commentator David Hubbard summarizes it well when he says, Judgment at history's end is the climax of a process by which God holds nations and persons accountable to him as creator and Lord. When it does happen, everyone will see it. Everyone will see Christ coming back. There will be a trumpet sound, heavens will part, and we will all see Jesus coming at one time. And at that moment, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess what? That he is Lord. 
There's no such thing as this rapture where an airplane is flying and all of a sudden the pilot is gone and it crashes. There's no, that, even the word rapture is never found. Hear me. Some of you, this may be hard to believe. That word is not found in Scripture. It's not. There's no secret rapture. Every, at one moment, Jesus is going to show up. And at that point, there will be a judgment. Everyone before the throne, some bowing in worship and some bowing in fear, about to receive a sentence. And then what happens? While sitting on his throne, he will execute judgment as the great judge of all. And here's Jesus' words. When the Son of Man comes into glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate his people from one another as a sheep separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you since the foundation of the earth. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Happy Easter. It's intense stuff, but the point is, Jesus is the judge of your heart. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying when he looks back at Jonah. He says the, the Ninevites will rise up and they, they will conf- uh, they'll confirm his justice in, in the sentencing on those who didn't repent because they got a terrible sermon from Jonah, but they responded. They at least responded. And we, generations, generations from Jesus and until now, we got a great sermon from Jesus who is far greater. And we have heard more and seen more. So would you think our repentance would come any easier? Jesus ends this whole thing by saying, behold, something greater is here. He even points to Queen of Sheba and says, you know, that the queen from the south has come. And she even went to Solomon because she sensed that there was one greater coming. So my last concluding question is this. What makes Jesus so great? just that he's God and has all the power and will judge everyone? I don't think so. What did Jesus tell us right before this? That he will die and rise again. And why does he die and rise again? Jesus tells us over and over and over and over again throughout his entire ministry. He dies to pay the penalty of the sin that we so deserve. God, the judge, stands over us. Our sin is treacherous and absolutely serious. And we deserve the judgment. So what makes Jesus such a great judge? is not that he says, done, 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 done. What makes him such a great judge is that he gets up off his throne, climbs down from behind the judgment bench, and gives up his life to pay the penalty of justice that we deserve. The judge gets up and pays the penalty. I don't know if you've ever been to court. Even if it's Will County, you know, in CD and me, it's kind of a weird place to have a court hearing. But uh, I, I can never imagine the judge saying, Paul, you, gotta, you were doing a 45 in a school zone, 45 over in a school zone. Listen, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to take out my wallet, and I'm going to pay that for you in full and you're free to go. Serious? And that, that's minor. 45 over in a school zone. It, it's, they don't show any mercy in school zones here in New Lenox. Don't try it. But your sin is so much more grievous against God. It, his holiness and your sinfulness is no match. He has the right to crush you. But Jesus, being the good judge, climbs over the bench and says, I will pay that price for you. There is no judge like that.
Do you get that? Do you get why Jesus' call to repentance is not just some grace, fear-mongering kind of thing like you see on some of those stupid billboards that you, you see where it's like, turn or burn kind of thing? It's like, really? You're going to scare me into repentance? Jesus' call to repentance is gracious. It's a gracious call for us to look on him, to, to see who he is and what he has done for you and me and to embrace it with all of our hearts and all of our lives. You see, the Christian motive for the judgment day isn't meant to be excitement about God sending people to hell. Our primary motive is meant to be longing to see at last our loving judge and Savior face to face and bowing in adoration. And until that day, Till that day, I'll be preaching the good news of the gospel about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So in conclusion, Jonah was thrown overboard and nearly died, spent three days in the darkness of a fish so just a few sailors might be saved. Jesus was thrown onto the cross and really died, spending three days in the darkness of the earth so many who are lost in this world might be brought in. Jonah was spit out of a fish's mouth so that, so that at the right point in time, he might offer the people of that ancient city of Nineveh repentance and new life. But Jesus was spit out of the grave itself that for all time, not just one time, but for all time, he might offer people of all cities, of all nations, of all races, of all creeds, of all people around this world, repentance and new life. Jesus is the greater Jonah. Jonah thought God shouldn't have had grace on the Ninevites because it compromised God's justice. But Jesus thought God should have grace. So took God's justice upon his own very body and soul in order that he might extend it towards all mankind. The book of Jonah is about Jesus. The great judge who died and rose again for our sins. He's both the reason why we can and we should repent and the reason why we can should rejoice. The one thing that's been made clear about our study in the book of Jonah, it's that we all need God's grace and salvation. Every one of us. Whether you are in Christ or still investigating Christ, we are all in need of God's grace and salvation. Whether we're irreligious like the sailors, religious like Jonah, or anti-religious like the Ninevites, we all need God's grace. So let's respond to God's word today. I'm going to pray and we're going to respond by receiving the Lord's Supper together. And we re receive the Lord's Supper every week together because the bread and the wine tell us about Jesus' body and his blood shed for our corporate and individual sins. And additionally, we recognize Jesus' presence here he is with us as his body gathered and jesus rose from the dead and ever ministers to us so when you come to receive if you are a believer in jesus christ if you have said yes to his grace and you have repented and you have turned to him if you recognize your need for him everything is about him repent of sin embracing jesus's great work on the cross he's the judge folks who died for you then allow jesus to administer fresh new life to you by the power of his resurrection from the dead he's good and he lives and cares for us.
we are all in need. Some of us have been drug in here today. Some of us have come here out of compulsion, out of duty. Some of us have come in here today with glad hearts anticipating something. Lord, I pray that you would minister to our hearts right where we're at. Lord, I pray for that man or woman or child who this morning, whose eyes and hearts are being awakened and realizing that you are the good judge who has jumped over the judgment bench and said, I will pay, I will pay for your sins. Now come to me with all your junk, all your lies, all your sin, all your inadequacies, all your failed dreams and hopes. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Lord, would you receive them and reassure them of your graciousness? Lord, for those of us who are more legalistic and think that we've got to accomplish something, we've got to do something, we've got to be more faithful to win your love, Lord, would you say, look at, my, look at the price that I have paid. I have thrown myself on the cross so that you, your sins might be gone. My righteousness goes to you. Your shame comes to me. Receive my blood. Lord, may we realize that there is nothing that we can do to earn your love. Father God, as we come to this meal, may we find our deepest satisfaction and joy in you. Our deepest satisfaction and joy in you. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus.